place for the reading of God's Word from Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Hear now God's Word. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said, You may be seated. The Apostle Paul in this section of his epistle tells the Colossians that he wants them to know what great conflict. Literally here that word conflict has reference to an athletic competition or a struggle or a a contest he sees the people of God in. And that he has, and this great conflict he has for them is he desires to see them prevail, as well as for those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen his flesh, seen his face in the flesh. That is, he's praying for the whole church. His concern is for those that he knows personally, as well as those that he hasn't met yet, but because they're in the church, he has great concern for them. He recognizes, as does any true pastor, that we are in a life and death contest for the souls of men and women, and he is concerned about certain threats. The two things he wanted for them, and that I want for you, are first, that their hearts might be encouraged and knit together in love. Isn't that what you want for your family? That's what I want for you. That's what Paul wanted for the church at Colossae and Laodicea. I think some especially rough days might be ahead of us. And if we're going to do this and do it successfully, if we're going to prevail in this contest, then we're going to need each other. Second, he wanted them, and I want you, to attain to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, he wanted for them what I want for you, which is Christian maturity. Paul then proceeds to encourage them, as I do you as well, regarding the progress that you have already made, the fact that you're here, the fact that you come every Lord's Day, to worship and assemble with God's people. And you're doing many, many other things well. 
But as Paul knows, and any pastor knows, and as I know in my own life, that we can do better, that we need to be reminded, we need to be encouraged, we need to be helped, we need to make progress if we're going to be ready for the next challenges. His concern is that they might get sidetracked, they might stop progressing, even turn back. And this can happen to anyone who is not on the lookout and carefully doing those things that cause us to actually make progress in the faith. You see, to not be advancing is to risk defeat. And so Paul explains in verses 4 through 7, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive or enticing words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the Spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and, the, and your steadfastness, that is, your solid, the solid foundation of your faith in Christ. As you therefore receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established, that is, firm and confirmed in your faith, as you have been taught and are abounding or overflowing in it with thanksgiving. I hope that's a description of you. The pastor's task, among other things, is to keep us focused on God's truth no matter what is going on around us. To navigate through dangerous waters, to arrive at our destination safely. So, for example, when the Apostle Paul is writing to his spiritual son and pastor at Ephesus to Timothy, he says to him as he closes that book, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at the appearing of his kingdom. Let me just pause there and ask you and remind you, do you believe that? Do you really, truly believe that God is going to judge the living and the dead at his appearing in kingdom. Because if you do, it changes everything. And if you don't, it changes everything. He continues to say to Pastor Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. That is, regardless of what's going on, whether you're being received favorably or unfavorably, whether you're looked up to or looked down upon, I want you to do the one thing you're called to do, and that's preach God's Word. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to fables... But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Keep your eye on the ball. Stay focused on the one task you have, which is to uphold the Word of God as the standard of truth, as the lighthouse. Now, I want to begin this series of sermons by setting the table and establishing the biblical mandate for addressing some of the false philosophies of our culture. 
We will look at three primary passages of Scripture that address this subject over the next few weeks, starting with our text today from Colossians 2, 1 through 10. It is always essential to provide proper exegesis of the text, which is to then and which is to offer the critical explanation and interpretation of what the word says. It is equally important for us to then have an incarnational exegesis of the text. That is, we are to do what the Bible says to do and to live out in the church and and to live it out in our individual lives. In other words, we're to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Dr. Bonson used to say, everyone does philosophy, but not everyone does it well. So philosophy, which is a particular system of thought, is an inescapable concept. And Paul's addressing the problem of false philosophies, of some philosophies that might lead us away from the truth. And most of us get our philosophy the way people are getting COVID-19. We just pick it up somewhere. We get it from our parents, our school, our church, our friends, the television, books, the internet, so forth. In other words, much of it just comes from the environment or the culture that we live in. It's all around us all the time. But the Bible warns us that this approach to philosophy is very dangerous and that we must be careful to get our system of thought, our philosophy from both the Father and of Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All of it. This will take a self-conscious effort on our part. Moreover, it requires that the church do her part in providing the biblical foundation and instruction. Historically, the church has done pretty well as Christian ideas have often transformed entire cultures to reflect a more biblical view of the world. Ideas about the triune God, about man being made in God's image, creation, sin, redemption, providence, marriage, family, sex, worship, ethics, government, on and on. Christian civilization, Christendom. In other words, the entire view of the world and every subject. A philosophy of ideas, you see, always has universal consequences. Philosophy is dealing with truth, and there is only one truth. You know, a line can only be straight one way. It can be crooked an infinite number of ways. Jesus told Thomas, I am the way, the truth, And the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's an exclusive claim. And so the Apostle Paul wanted to see the church at Colossae and Laodicea. He wanted to see there a unity of thought that would lead to their being knit together in love. He knew that alien philosophies were a threat to that unity and to that unity of thought, and so he sought to warn and instruct them, a warning that apparently some of them didn't heed, because when we go over to Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 and 16, John is going to write this to the Laodiceans, 
These things says the Amen, that is Jesus, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Here's what Jesus said to the church at Laodicea. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And so it's clear that many who heard this epistle to the Colossians and Laodiceans, no doubt, received it as well, didn't listen, didn't heed the warnings. Paul knew where the unity and love comes from, and it comes from the only possible source, the only treasure house of sure and certain riches. These riches only come from the from full assurance. No question, no doubt, completely committed, full assurance of understanding. They, they're the result of full or mature knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. And so we're talking about Christian maturity here. That is, again, Christians knit together in love requires that we increase and grow in our knowledge of the Christian faith, of God, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There is not one iota of genuine wisdom or knowledge that can be attained without Christ. Not one. And the wisdom and knowledge of Christ are not limited to religious notions. Psalm 36, 9 says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Notice the language that Paul uses to describe the value of a mature knowledge of Jesus Christ. He describes that as riches, as treasure. To be mature in the knowledge of God is to be a wealthy person. And again, John would later rebuke the Laodiceans because they took their comfort in a different sort of riches. And I think that's a danger we face. There is no generation that has been more affluent than our own. Here's what John writes again in Revelation 3 to the church at Laodicea who had grown lukewarm. He says, because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing... And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich. Now Paul is not addressing a new problem here when he's warning about these philosophies that might lead them astray. The corrupting influence of vain philosophies have plagued the people of God from the beginning. In both the Old and New Testaments, the falling away of God's people always begins with foreign philosophies, when foreign philosophies are embraced. The story of church history since the close of the New Testament isn't any different, and we are not an exception to this rule. Where do these philosophies come from? Well, they've been with us since the Garden of Eden when Satan offered Eve an alternative way of looking at life. The first commandment addresses the problem. You shall have no other gods before me. No other authorities before me. 
These philosophies are rooted in man and in self-worship of the creature rather than the creator. And so what do these philosophies look like? How do we recognize them? They come in many forms, as does Satan, who is an angel of light. Some are very formal. We give them names like materialism or existentialism, hedonism, rationalism, logical positivism, Marxism. It's a very, very long list. Most are not so formal, and they usually don't have a formal name assigned to them. They might just be a blend of all of those or some of those. And many are couched, and you'll notice this especially in our day, in scientific and psychological terms. Martin and Deidre Bobgin wrote a series of books some years ago called Psychoheresy, The Psychological Seduction of Christianity, in which they detail many of these vain philosophies. But they always present themselves not only as harmless, but as positively good, offering some special insight to happiness and life. Where do you find them? Well, we could start at Amazon like we do with everything else, right? The philosophy section, the psychobabble section, the children's section, almost every other section of the bookstore. But we don't even have to read books to be bombarded with persuasive words and vain philosophies. They're everywhere all the time. Time would fail us if we were to examine all the sources, such as the internet, television, radio, the art, school, lunchrooms, the guy next door, and the thousand other places where all of these alluring philosophies lurk and the philosophers peddle their wares. But Paul says, in his great concern for the church, do not be cheated and deceived by persuasive words. He says, beware lest anyone cheat you. When the Bible says beware, you better pause and read that sentence again. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and that is set over against what? And not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and authority. The word that is translated cheat means to plunder or to rob or defraud or to take captive. These persuasive words surround us and they're as smooth as butter. They are siren songs to our, to our ours and to our children's ears. You know that term, right? Siren songs describe something that's very appealing or alluring on the surface, but ultimately is deceptive and dangerous or destructive. It's rooted in Greek mythology. The sirens were beautiful women with the upper bodies of humans and the lower bodies of birds whose bewitching songs lured sailors to their doom as they would sail toward them and their ships would become beached and stranded. So irresistible were their songs that sailors who heard them would be at the end tempted to navigate too close and risk 
uh, wrecking and be thrown overboard. In Homer's Odyssey, the hero, Odysseus, cleverly stops the ears of his crews with wax to keep them from hearing the sirens' songs, but he tied himself to the mask so he could hear the songs and yet survive their tempting call. What kind of thinking can be characterized as vain? The opposite of God's Word. Deuteronomy 32:47. For it is not a vain thing for you, because it is your life, and by this word you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. Philippians 2.16, holding fast to the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Why? Because we held fast to the word. Acts 4.24, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. Psalm 2, what is it that people want to get rid of? What do the rulers of the earth want to get rid of? The rule of God. The things that bind them. The things that put limits on them. They don't want God telling them what to do. 1 Corinthians 3.20, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile or vain. That's the wise. 1 Timothy 6.20, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Vain thinking is that which is not in accord with God's Word. It's that simple. It's empty. It's going nowhere. Ephesians 5, 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So what kind of thinking is deceptive thinking? Again, that which is in opposition to God's Word. Hebrews 3, Brethren, beware, lest any of you lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called a day, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, while it says, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. God's Word is what we're to hold fast to. Now consider the nature of deception. It sounds so good. The Bible warns us repeatedly against this danger. It's often close to the truth, but a partial truth is still a lie. And watch out for so-called science, which often claims an authority higher than God. We're just going to follow the science. Has science ever changed its mind? How often? Well, I'd be careful about just following the science. I'm not anti-science, but science is a servant. It is not the Lord. And it's certainly not above the Lord of Lords. A thought experiment. Which do you believe first? The Bible or a psychologist? 
a professional or the Bible? Now, are the professionals always wrong? No, but they're always subject to the Word of God. Let God be found true, though every man a liar. That's why every idea that is presented to us, whether it comes from outside ourselves or even from within ourselves, must be examined in light of Scripture, which is the only rule of faith and life and the only rule by which we may glorify and enjoy God forever. For the weapons of our warfare, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10, are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Paul's motivation and expectation is found in verse 5 of our text. I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. This good order, this smooth running machine of the church when it's doing what God's called it to do will result in steadfastness. The Christian faith remains central. It's not moved one way or the other. It's not swayed by what's popular at the moment, what's getting, uh, what's trending, what's hot. What's popular is not the standard. Paul says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. If you receive Christ, then walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding with thanksgiving. And so again, Paul warns us not to be cheated and deceived by vain philosophy. This is a robbery of the mind and the soul. The world loves to give us a substitute for Christ. They are perfectly satisfied if you will just submit to some area of neutrality. It's certain types of philosophy that Paul does not approve of. He's not against the pursuit of wisdom or knowledge, certainly. Philosophy is fine as long as one properly finds genuine wisdom, which means for Paul finding it in Christ. But there's a kind of philosophy that does not begin with the truth of God in Christ. Its origin and direction is rooted in the accepted principles of the world and the traditions of men. This is the type of philosophy Paul is warning us against. And it's often blatant, but it is more often subtle. God's wisdom, you see, extends to every subject, to every fact. This is why we must self-consciously examine every area of our lives and develop a self-consciously biblical view of every area of our lives. There's a philosophy of everything, of economics, of education, of history, of science, of math, and family, you name it. Our objective is to be sure certain that our philosophy is of a subject is in accord with God's philosophy of a subject. That's called theology, what God thinks about anything. It's thinking God's thoughts after Him. To the degree that we agree with God's thoughts on the subject, 
we have the truth on that subject. Remember, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. They're as far apart as the heavens are from the earth. Paul's theme in his letter to the Colossians, which is the preeminence of Christ, tells us the only way to a sound philosophy. As he writes in Romans 12, that we're not to be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. Let God be true. Though every man a liar. The basic principles of the world, you see, are not according to Christ. Any reasoning or philosophy which refuses to honor the ultimate authority of Christ must be rejected. Any reasoning, any philosophy which refuses to honor the ultimate authority of Christ must be rejected. Galatians 4, 8, and 9. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not God's. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? Any alleged wisdom that follows the traditions of men and elementary principles of the world rather than Christ must be rejected as dangerous and deceitful. You, Christian, are complete in Him, and you cannot improve upon Him. Since therefore all the fullness of the indwelling essence of God is completely concentrated in Christ, there is no need of nor justification for looking elsewhere for help, for salvation, or spiritual perfection. Why then do we so often do what many have done before us? Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn for themselves cisterns, cisterns that can hold no water. Christ is the foundation that never fails. He is the true vine. He said, Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. He is the head over all principality and power. Christ has authority over the angels, over the devils, over men, and over everything. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. How, therefore, could anything or anybody or any philosophy do anything for you that Christ has not already done. By the way, that's the argument in Hebrews for some of the Jews who wanted to go back to the priesthood and the tabernacle and animal sacrifices. He said, if Christ didn't take away your sins, what makes you think going back to sacrificing bulls and goats is going to do anything? There is no sacrifice for sin. Now, it is fair to assume that each of us is deceived in a number of ways and a number of things. If you think you're not deceived, then you've been deceived. That's the nature of deception. If you have any sin, then you have been deceived by it because Hebrews says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God, 
but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence, how long? Steadfast to the end. So then, let us go looking for those areas of deception in our thinking. What have we brought in that was so persuasive and yet is contrary to Christ? What has influenced our thinking in such a way that we have added to or taken away from the Christian faith? Remember, in and of yourself, you know almost nothing about everything. If you love wisdom, that is true philosophy, then it will... It will begin and end with God's Word. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. For the commandment is a lamp and the law is a light. Proverbs 6.23 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And then finally, how do we find the truth? Well, how did we lose the truth in the first place? Adam and Eve lost it by forgetting what God had said to them. Isn't that how the devil began? Hath God said? They knew God's word, but they forgot to listen. We not only forget God's word, we often don't know it very well in the first place. Things sound good to us. They sound persuasive. Boy, that sounds good. Sounds persuasive to us because we don't know enough to have the necessary discernment to know a lie when we hear it. We're witnessing a world full of so-called woke young people who don't have a clue. They're not out of our doors or out of the doors of the church or the school for five minutes before the barkers at Vanity Fair have them by the throat. They're following their Pied Pipers. You remember that traditional German story? The Pied Piper of Hamelin, whose beautiful music led all the children away from their homes. Hebrews 5, 13 and 14, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belonged to those who are full age, that is, mature, those who by reason of use, that is, use of God's Word, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. If you don't know God's Word, you can't even tell the difference sometimes between what's good and what's evil. You'll call evil good and good evil. We have a world full of that. So do you work out in the Word of God? Is it a part of your routine? Do you, like the noble-minded Bereans, eagerly receive the Word as it's preached and search the Scriptures daily to see if these things are so? Now, I'm going to have a lot more to say about this subject in the weeks ahead. We're going to look at some other key passages, and then we're going to take up the subject of some of the key false philosophies of our day. So again, we're laying the groundwork here. But I want to end by just reminding you of the sufficiency of Scripture. Scripture is not a condiment. It's not something that's added. It's not a book of platitudes and sayings 
It is the living and eternal Word of God that is completely sufficient. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable or useful for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. What else do you need, by the way? That the man of God may be complete or mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What else do you need? What else do I need? And so I'm calling you back to stand firm and to to make fresh commitments to that word so that you are equipped to face a hostile world that is seeking to overthrow you and your children, and they're seeking to do it all the time, every day, 24-7. Let's pray. I'm going to pray today Psalm 17. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry, give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from your presence. Let your eyes look on the things that are upright. You have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and found nothing. I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. Concerning the works of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. Uphold my steps in your paths, that my footsteps may not slip. I have called upon you, and you will hear me, O God. Incline your ear and hear my speech. Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. O you who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings from the wicked who oppress me from my deadly enemies who surround me. They have closed up their fat hearts. With their mouths they speak proudly. They have now surrendered us in our steps, surrounded us in our steps. They have set their eyes crouching down to the earth as a lion is eager to tear his prey and like a young lion lurking in secret places. Arise, O Lord, confront him. Cast him down. Deliver my life from the wicked with your sword. With your hand from men, O Lord, from men of the world who have their portion in this life and whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure, they are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their possession for their babes. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Amen. The Bible is full of the so-called hard sayings of Jesus. He was not playing games, and he certainly was not interested in simply counting noses. He wanted true disciples, and only true disciples. The half-hearted were invited to go home. Matthew 10, 32 through 39, Jesus said, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. 
Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. We come to the Lord's table each week to feed on Christ, for he alone is the bread of life. He alone is the true vine. He alone is the light of the world. He alone is the way, the truth, and the light. By our baptism, we have taken an oath to follow him all the days of our life. We have denied ourselves, taken up our cross, so for all who are still committed to this long journey, let us feed upon him again and renew our strength that we may mount up with wings like eagles, run and not be weary, walk and not faint. The Lord is our rock and our fortress and our deliverer, our God and our strength in whom we will trust, our shield and the horn of our salvation. You are our stronghold. We will call upon you who is worthy to be praised. We will rejoice in your salvation and in your name we will set up our banners. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Father, in gratitude for your work of salvation, we commit ourselves to serve you with gladness in this new week, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with you, proclaiming the good news of your salvation from day to day, declaring your glory among the nations and your wonders among all peoples. For you, O Lord, are great and greatly to be praised. You are to be feared above all gods. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, upon the Lord. Amen. Amen.